Anybody ever tell you, welcome to the real world? I suspect they have. If they haven't, you haven't been alive very long. It's a pretty common phrase. And when somebody says, welcome to the real world, you can pretty much guess what they mean. It means the world's not a fairy tale. It means the world's not a utopia. It means the world's a pretty rough place. So at the Publical Channel, what we do is we read the Bible. Um, we're a bit all over the place, a little unnatural the way we're doing things, skipping around. We don't normally skip, you know, verses, but we are going to skip around just so we can get a sense of what's going on. I encourage you to read everything in between always, uh, not trying to skip over the hard bits, not at all. So our reading today is going to start in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to land in, in a couple different places and we'll end in Genesis chapter 11. And so here's our text. Here is the Word of God. Here is the Bible read out loud. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, well, who told you that, that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me to be with, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Chapter 3 ends with this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, chapter 4 is the famous Cain and Abel. We'll come back to that, but we're just going to skip past. 
And when we uh, get to chapter 6 through 9, it's all about the famous Noah scene and the flood. Let's just dive into chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God said, or saw the whole earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their own way on earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then that scene continues until we get to the end of Noah's time. Um, and let's just dive in to see what Noah does with his life after the flood. Chapter 9, verse 20, Noah began to make, to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And then in chapter 11, chapter 11, quite a bit of time has gone by, who knows how much, but here is where humankind is now. Mankind says to one another, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech, that the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the languages of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. But praise be to God for his words. Again, I really encourage you to read the in-between bits. We didn't try to skip over anything rough. In fact, I think we picked up on uh, the roughest parts. And now it's time to talk. Because that's what we do, man. We talk about the Bible. I'm absolutely convinced, and I hope you are too, that the Bible actually has something for us. But before we go any further, let's do what comes natural between us and God, if we're interested. And that is, let's pray. And let's just pray. Let's keep it simple the way Jesus taught us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We come here to see Jesus, him only, but to understand and to get a grip. Amen. Well, it is great to have you here at the Publical Channel. And we are in part four of our series. And the title of today's part four is Real world. So get a grip, real world. That's the stuff that we're after here. And as we, you know, read the text, um, there's a couple snags I think we need to talk about ahead of time because, you know, it's kind of like foghorn leghorn talking to that little chick, you know, pay attention to me when I'm talking to you, son, you know, you're distracted, listen up, boy, come on, that kind of thing. And, and there's a couple things in the words that I read that, that possibly have you in la-la land already. So let me address those in the quickest way possible. Number one, number one, what are we to make of this conversation in the Garden of Eden between people, that's easy enough for us to wrap our head around, and 
what appears to be a talking serpent. Assumed to be a snake, right? Assumed to be a snake. But what are we to make of this? I mean, this seems so far-fetched that it, it, uh, it automatically attacks our modern-day senses and our sensibilities. So what are we to do with this? Talking snakes, talking serpents, whatever a talking serpent might look like. Um, you know, how far are we supposed to take this? Well, let me just say this, like Foghorn Leghorn. Let's not lose the point. See, there is a point, and it's kind of like Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If you don't see that the main point is that God created, not how he created it and trying to teach you how he created, that's not the point at all. The point here, too, is is very simple. And the point here, too, is what happens next. And what happens next explains reality. The fall of human beings, the distance between us and God, the problematic world that we live in. That's the point, okay? Now, when it comes to Adam and Eve, well, the apostles had no problem um, seeing Jesus as a real person and Adam as a real person. In fact, they compared the two of them and talked about how significant, one, you know, the beginning was and two, the end was that Adam, you know, brought the world into a certain condition and Jesus is bringing the world into a certain condition. Two men compared. So there's no embarrassment, it seems, from the apostles' eyes in talking about the Genesis passages in a reality, okay? Um, the snake, the serpent, here's what I think is the easiest way to not get lost in the weeds. The serpent is created. The serpent is a created thing. Just like Adam and Eve are created things, the serpent, too, is a created thing. In fact, that point is, is what's made there in chapter 3. Crafty, the craftiest of all of the created stuff is what it said. But he's still created. And so right off the bat, the Bible is not going to endorse this kind of cosmic, you know, battleground between good and evil. No, God is way more powerful than evil. In fact, the Bible presents God as containing evil constantly. And he's not responsible for evil, but he contains evil so that for the sake of his own storyline. And so he's going to restrain the, the outcome of evil. Part of God removing Adam and Eve from the garden is about keeping a, a handle or keeping some sort of restraints on evil. The end of it, uh, ch chapter 11, is also about God restraining the effects of evil. Okay? But never does the Bible give us the sense that God has a little bit of sweat on his brow because he's doing battle with evil. It's not like that at all. It's no sweat. There's no sweat involved when it comes to God. And the Bible will not endorse this kind of like, you know, like, ooh, you know, God's biting his nails, wondering how that's going to be. Okay, so how do we, how do we handle this? First of all, this is a piece of literature. And if you just know anything about literature, then you accept the fact that literature is going to be at times representative. It's going to be symbolic um, we, without distorting the reality of it. We might call it historical fiction or, you know, 
just the kind of representation of reality, but kind of pulled together into a summarized version so that it's quick and easy to understand. There's no need to name all the characters because the representation is really what the story is about. The symbolism is really what the story is about. And it is about reality. So the other thing about this reality is it doesn't take much of an imagination to understand the reality in a story. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so that's one, you know, kind of curly hair that we might want to uh, straighten out. Another curly hair that we might want to straighten out is, is that if you're a really good listener, you heard that twice, twice, we heard God having a conversation with himself, okay? So that is problematic. We addressed that the last time. If you didn't listen to last week's video, let me just tell you once again, there's a couple ways to resolve this. When you, we hear, let us, you know, come, let's go down and check out man. Let us, you know, do this. Okay, seems like God is talking to other gods. Seems like the Bible's admitting that there's other gods. Hold the brakes. First of all, if you know anything about literature, which I never did until recently, but, but if you know anything about literature, there is such a thing as a royal plural, and it's quickly described like this. If you're home alone and you get a UPS package and you run to the door and the UPS driver's long gone and you grab that package and you say, let's see what we have here. Well, if you said that, nobody's going to consider you to be you know, schizophrenic, a multiple personality person. No, it's just that a figure of speech is a royal plural that comes together. So you could dismiss it all as royal plurals. But there is an interesting development by the time we get to Jesus. Jesus will hold, because the Bible makes a really big deal that God is one. Monotheism is the Bible's thing. In fact, other religions that are monotheistic are dependent on the Bible for the most part. So, you know, it's a pretty big deal. And Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, he thinks that it's a pretty big deal too. He does not change the you know very strict idea that monotheism is the right way to think of God. God is one. But Jesus adds a complication to it, which if we're talking about God, is he allowed to be a little bit more complicated than we are? I say yes. Jesus adds to the complication that the one single God is still one single God. But that God is Father, is Son, is Spirit. That's how much Jesus lets us know. That the one God is complicated. You get complications to it. Father, Son, and Spirit while remaining one God. I don't care what you how you describe it. Hey, I'm just going to take Jesus to this world and say, okay, you're allowed to be a little bit more complicated than me because you're better than me. Can you say that? Can you say that God's better than you? <laughs> Maybe that's where the trouble begins. And maybe that's where our passage will take us. So the other thing that is going on here, so that's that's you know part of our, our trouble. I think it's easily worked out, um, though. You know, so so if we take what Jesus says about God, it's not hard to imagine maybe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit having a conversation with each other, or just simply it's a royal plural. Forget about it. Try not to get distracted and try to stay focused on the story. Now, once again, the storyline. The storyline is about the real world and getting a grip on the real world. The Bible wants us to have a grip. The Bible wants us to have something extremely useful. Um, a worldview, that works, you know. An imagined reality, some way of harnessing our imagination and channeling it to what it was given to us for. 
That's all behind the scenes here. I really like the way that Scott Adams uh, describes, um, he says that all human beings needs a filter, a good filter. And, and, and Scott reduces a good filter for a human being into two categories. One, a good filter should make you happy. Two, a good filter should help you predict the future. Not in some sort of weird way, but to help you, you know, as human beings, you do want something to help you navigate the future, to be able to predict how things are generally going to play out. And listen, nothing can help you more than having a firm grip of the real world in which we live in. Welcome to the real world. And in this passage, it's very, it passages, it's very important that you understand that the Bible does not paint utopia for you. But the Bible paints a picture of the real world for you. And if you have a firm understanding of the reality of this real world, it'll help you predict the future. There is nobody who gets let down misled and, misled and, and taken you know, advantage of quicker than people who do not have a firm grasp of the real world. People who insist on predicting that everything's going to be fine are simply people that don't have a firm grip on the real world in which they live in. You got to make plans. You got to make contingency plans because the world's a bit of a rough place. You see where I'm coming from? I know you do. Um, but the first stop is, is Genesis 3. And there is some uh, a very important, you know, picture created here in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to call it the rebel yell. You might call it the rebellion section. You might call it the, uh, well, the fall. You might call it sin. I like the rebel yell. The rebel yell that Adam and Eve give us here um, in their conversation with the serpent. I say their conversation with the few, you know, Eve did all the talking, I get it, in, in the Bible. But there's a very eerie moment there where whenever it comes time for Adam to eat, hey, he wasn't in the next town or the next garden over. He was right there the whole time. A very pathetic look for Adam. That he allowed this whole transaction to go on and he doesn't say a word. He doesn't do his job. He doesn't step in to help. He doesn't, well, he's just going along with it. So if you blame Eve, you're crazy. Because Adam's the worst character in it. He says nothing. And then he goes along with it. Eve, at least, is having some sort of you know, verbal sparring. Eve, at least, presented a first defense of no. We'll talk about that in a second. It's important, though, in chapter 3 that you see the pattern. That you see how it all starts when it comes to rebelling against God. The rebel yell in all of us is seen in this conversation. And the first place that we see the rebel yell is, is in a distortion. So the serpent throws out what sounds like what God said, but it's distorted. So it's got a little bit of reality in it, but it's also got a little bit of half-bakedness in it. It's a perversion or, you know, a distortion, a twisted, you know, kind of idea. When the serpent says... What does he say first? He says, he says, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
part of that sounds true, but it's, it's a distortion because that's not what God said. Eve actually clarifies that for him. She says, no, 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 no. You see, we may eat of the trees in the garden, just not one tree. There's just one tree in the midst of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. Oh, 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 oh. But that's how the rebel yell begins. It begins with distortions and confusions to kind of get you back on your heels a bit and say, hmm, maybe I don't, maybe it is, maybe, 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 maybe. The next thing that happens is just an outright misrepresentation. Just an outright, you know, you know, well, it goes like this. The next thing, the next thing that is, is said is, the serpent says, oh, well, surely you won't die. And he goes on. He says, he, he makes God sound like a sore loser. He makes God sound like, well, harsher than what God is. Meanwhile, we just got off of two chapters where God is very loving, caring, created this whole loving environment for everybody to uh, work well in, in a very chillaxed atmosphere. And, and here, here, all of a sudden, God is, is put into harsh tones. And, and, and it goes like this. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. You see where the, the real misrepresentation comes in is that, well, God has bad motives. God himself, God himself is a little on the jealous side. God is vindictive. God is, is, is capricious. God is, is, well, he's a killjoy, man. He just doesn't want you to be as powerful as him. And then we see, all of a sudden, when Eve looks at that fruit, she sees it in a different way now. Because she has a distorted image, a complete misrepresentation of God in her mind, as well as a distortion of some of the words that God had said. And then she looks at it differently, and she sees it differently. She's like, yeah, I can see this. This is pretty nice stuff. I bet you it tastes good. I bet you it is good. And she gives some to Adam. And you know the rest of the story. It's not an apple, by the way. That's a ridiculous notion of the story. I don't know who started that. It's not an apple. You, you, you have never seen the fruit of this tree. Once again, think representation and symbolism. This is not an apple tree. Okay. It's not in our normal food group. Okay. So, so what do we take from this? What we take from this is that prior to this event, the image of God, the image of God was a gift to mankind, a gift to mankind so that they can enjoy the station of being number two to God, so that they could enjoy relationship with God, so that they could enjoy hearing from God and managing the place that God had created for them, very generously, by the way, but, but to be able to hear from him and to relate to him in a way that they could be great number twos in the world that he had created. The problem, though, is that the next day, and it's not the next day, but years could have gone by. I, I don't know who, that's not part of the story. What's important to see is that soon after, soon after, with the image of God now theirs, they return the favor and create God in their image. You see how that goes? Uh, Blaise Pascal was a, a, a famous uh, uh, comedian, I think. Um, he lived hundreds of years ago, but you know, he he said, you know, God created man in His image, and the next day, 
man returned the favor. You see, that's just funny stuff. And, and that is the heart and soul of the storyline. The gift of being in God's image is completely turned upside down and misused. And the power in being made in the image of God is completely turned on God. That's the nature of, of humanity as the Bible presents it to us. We turn on God. We turn on, on, on his kindness. We turn on his goodness. We, we misrepresent him. We make him into the cosmic killjoy. We turn ourselves, though, we turn ourselves, though, into being better than God. You know, being like God, we now judge him and we say, well, we're better than you. We would like to decide. And so the way that the Bible describes sin is not breaking rules. It's not it at all. The Bible is just described sin as Adam and Eve have just, you know, carried this out. They are the makers of rules. They will decide what is right and wrong. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, once eaten, is about them saying, oh, no, no, I will decide what's right and what's wrong. I don't need to listen to God about what is right and what is wrong. There you go. There you go. You live in God's world. You have the power of being in God's image. But then we turn it around and we say, well, I'll tell you what to do. Or at least I'll tell myself what to do. Now, granted, none of us wants to, uh, in Hitler-esque, you know, kind of rule the world. But there is no doubt that every single one of us, every single one of us, wants to rule the real estate around our own two feet and probably a few people here and there, if you know what I mean. People that we torture sometimes or that we're tortured by. But this creates a picture. It creates a picture that is an absolute reverse of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's a picture in reverse because now God's people in God's place with God's blessing has turned into an upside-down environment. Now it's the creature, the creation, the creature, now is over the people, and the people are trying to get over on God. <laughs> it's funny. If you can laugh at yourself, and if you can laugh at yourself, you can see yourself in this story, and you can see every single person that you've ever met in this story as well. The little old lady down the street who's never done anything wrong will tell you that she's done plenty wrong and she can see herself in this story. I know that because my grandmother's one of those little old ladies. But the bigger picture here is, is a picture of relationships all gone wrong. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, relationships all going right. People and God, people and creation, people and people, man and woman, together. All in a good, harmonious relationship. Now the relationships have all gone wrong. People and God. The relationship between people and God is now you know, at best stressed. People are now outside of the garden. There's distance between people and God. God, in probably the most horrific and scary, you know, sense, says, I'll let you go it alone if that's what you want. If you want to go it alone, I'll let you go it alone. I'll let you out of my garden. So now there you go. So the relationship between people and God has now gone sideways. The relationship between people and creation, if you read the curses, has now gone sideways. Now the, the earth and nothing's going to cooperate. Nothing's going to be easy. This is not the garden, man. Thistles, thorns, all kinds of this. Just creating pictures that everything in creation is now going to work against us. 
because we listen to the serpent, because we listen to creation, because we think that creation is a better teacher to us than God, okay? And then there's people and people, the man and the woman. You remember that great joy that the man and the woman seemed to be enjoying, you know, Adam leaping for joy that, you know, God had created a helper for him because he needed help, um, and because he was not fit to be alone, and, and there was great joy um, and holding, you know, fast to his wife, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. It was all looking pretty good. And now, when you read the curses, you know, you see that that relationship between the man and the woman is going to be a power struggle. The battle of the sexes has begun properly. And then the picture goes on, and it gets worse. Because in chapter 4, Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's kids. Abel seems like a sweetheart. He finds some favor with God. Cain, what's Cain do? He kills Abel. Not a big surprise, you know, for us being outside of the Garden of Eden and on our own, but it's horrific because there was no good reason for Abel to die. There was no good reason. Cain kills Abel for no good reason. Stop that for a second. This is now the world that we live in. It is a world where Cain kills Abel for no good reason. Stop asking, why do people do the things that they do? And start realizing that the real world is rough. The real world is distant and apart from God, and it's not loving, and it's not caring. It can be, but sometimes that's the greatest deception of all. You see, we live in a world where good people have bad things happening to them, and bad people seem to get away with it. The story of Cain and Abel you know, is not a story to be ignored. The Bible, God himself, is being honest with you. Just because you can't handle the truth doesn't make it bad. And, and that is the thing to see is that the truth of Genesis chapter 1 through 11, it doesn't take an imagination to seize this in real time. This is still the world in which we live in. It is a perfect descriptor of the world in which we live in, the real world that's rough, and it'll treat you roughly. Chapter 5 reinforces that God was right. Everybody dies die, die, die. Oh yeah, they may live 500 years. They die. That's the point. The, the, the literary structure of that is that Andy died, Andy died, Andy died, Andy died, Andy died. And when you get to chapter 6 to 9, the story of Noah, good grief. And it's not good grief, it's God grief. And God, you know, kind of lays his heart on the sleeve a little bit here and says, man, this is bad. Human beings know no bounds to their violence and to their evil. Once again, don't miss the point. This is not God's doing. God was nice enough not, not to bring his judgment down right away. People are responsible for the evils of this world. Because of our evils, the world is a crappy place. Okay. But it's not meant to be a, a dire outlook. It's meant to be a real outlook. If, if you remember, well, we'll get to that in a second. But the story of Noah 
gives us the sense that maybe there's going to be hope. But then Noah becomes a vine dresser and he drinks his product and he gets drunk and he lays around naked. Not good. Not good. And then chapter 10 through 11, the story of Babel. Same old people. By the time you get, you know, years and years away from Noah, what does the world look like? Well, mankind is, is rubbing its hands together, braggadocio fashion, saying, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build our own tower into the heavens. Let's make our own city. Clearly, clearly mankind has lost the plot. Clearly mankind and the image of God has taken all this power and let it go to their head that they can do this without God. My gosh, if that doesn't describe the world in which we live in, I don't know where you're living. I don't know where you're living. And that is the point. Get a grip on the real world. The Bible, God himself is trying to be very, very honest with you. I'm sorry if you can't handle the truth. And that is the, 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 the power in this storyline is that it describes very truthfully, almost too truthfully, the reality of our own existence. And the reality of our own existence is that we are still living apart, distanced from God. And that that, that spread, that spread should put a big lump in our throat. We were designed for eternity. We were designed to be God's people in God's place with God's blessing. What we are right now is people. We are people who are led more by creation than we are God. And consequently, we are people that have you know, broken relationships everywhere a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with creation, a broken relationship with people, especially the ones that should matter the most to us. We treat the worst. Our own brothers, our own husbands and wives, our own sisters, our family, our kin, who we brag about, we treat the worst. It's just the way things are. It's a perversion because we start off with a perversion by telling God, we'll decide what is right and what is wrong on our own. So here we are. This is, this is part of getting a biblical grip on life. And, and if, we, it, you know, if we just called that spade shovel a spade shovel, call it for what it is, the Bible could end there. And, and perfectly described the world in which we live in. The good news is, is that it does not end there. The Bible could end with just a clear statement of, the, of who we are. But because of, remember we said last week, and if you didn't watch that video, watch it. God made the place good because God is good. And the thing that we need is the goodness of God. And because God is good, he doesn't let it go. If I was God, if you were God, you probably would have made planet Earth toast somehow. And one of the creepiest uh, scenes that we just read through that I didn't point out is, is, is how at the end, you know, when, when the world is flooded, 
don't focus on how much of the world is flooded. Just focus on the fact that you're right back where it started. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep. And when you get to Genesis chapter 6, there you go. God is hovering over the face of the deep once again. Judgment, judgment has been called into action because, because everything was reversed. How can we blame God? Well, we shouldn't blame God. We should blame ourselves. We should have the capacity for blaming ourselves. People who don't know how to blame themselves end up being some of the hardest people to deal with. The Bible makes it very clear, we've got to understand ourselves. And if you can't relate to the Adam and Eve story, you're going to struggle in life. You're always going to be trying to make this place a utopia. You're always going to be surprised when something bad happens, or you're going to be mad at God when something bad happens. Worse yet. But the good thing is, is that the story's not going to end because God is good and he's committed to his goodness. And from here on out, Genesis chapter 12 on down to Jesus Christ is going to reflect the very commitment that God has to seeing his goodness in our lives. And we are going to need a rescue plan because of our rebel yell. In order to get back into that garden, in order to get past that cherubim that's going to keep us from the tree of life, eternity, we are going to need a rescue plan. We're going to need salvation. We're going to need God's mercy. We're going to need God's grace. And that is exactly what Jesus came to wrap up for us. Our goal is to keep providing very good, helpful, conversational videos that help you to understand the Bible and the importance of the Bible so that you can just have great conversations with people. Just good conversations, that's all. Helpful, good conversations. We hope to be a part of a cause that you believe is worthwhile. So it takes money to be in this real world that we live in. We are this small little church, but the vision of our people at this small little church in the Eastern Sierras is to actually try to reach as many people as possible in the United States and, and in the world. It's free of charge, though, and we don't ever intend on making things anything more than that. If you find this helpful and you'd like to partner in our cause, uh, please go to gracemammoth.com. You can find out great information how to get a hold of me, how you can uh, you know, partner with us financially. We've got a PayPal button. We have an address. We're a real place. We're a real 501c3. Everything you put to, you know, to us is a tax-deductible uh, contribution. We are legitimate in the real world, I guess. Anyhow, look forward to seeing you out there and in future videos. Thanks.